Hey guys, this is the Self-Evident Podcast. You may notice something different if you're watching. If you're listening, it sounds a little bit different. Uh, this week, what we're going to do is we're actually going to play you a little bit from our Friday night of the Truth to Power Conference. We figure this is a great weekend to do this. Massey is actually out of town. I have an event that is going on during when the podcast is supposed to premiere. So we thought, why not give you guys a free taste of what the conference was like, some of the content there. So for this, we are going to show you Pastor Todd's presentation. And I think this is the bedrock of why we do what we do. It's not just a political game. It's not just a tribal battle. It is a biblical thing that we are trying to do here. And so if you have any interest in a conference like this, know we've got stuff in the works. So you still have a chance to get on the train and to get uh, the information you need, the teaching you need, and to be able to move out into the world and do what God has called you to do. So sit back, relax, enjoy getting a fire hose of scriptural information as to why being involved in government is a biblical scriptural thing. So until next week, I love you guys. Thank you so much. So I'm about to introduce our next speaker, and, and this is an honor for me. Um, Pastor Todd and I have had a relationship for, I'd say, going on five and a half years. Um, I remember coming to this church, and we were already doing self-evident, and he had introduced himself, and he said, hey, what do you guys do? And I said, we have a ministry called Self-Evident. He goes, what's that? I said, we go all over the country. We talk to kids. We go to schools, colleges. We talk about the biblical view of government. We talk about uh, God's role in government, all these things, Ten Commandments. And he goes, man, that's amazing. I'm going to check out your website. And if you know anything about that, they typically don't. They say that to be nice, right? We came back that Wednesday. He had watched every video we were producing. And then he went to a conference with this, uh, this assistant pastor that he knew and came back changed. And ever since that time, he said, you know, this is something I think we have to do. Pastor Todd is the executive pastor, the pastor here at Revive Church, Stewart, Florida. Pastor Todd is not only my friend, he's a standard, he's a bulwark of freedom and liberty, he's a bulwark of the Holy Ghost. And you know what? Things are going to change because of the vision of what God puts in one person and look what it can transform. I'm so honored to call this man a father figure, a mentor, and a friend. Everybody, please welcome Pastor Todd Mozingo. Unfortunately, Pastor Todd couldn't be here tonight, so he asked me to fill in for him. Uh, hey, I am glad you are here, uh, and, and I just want to say this before I get started. I'm going to fill you up with a bunch of familiar information, but then ask you to look at it in a whole new way, okay? We're going to dive in because humorously enough, I've been told I've got 45 minutes. <laughs> and this is what I need you to do because I've got an hour and a half worth of material, but I can deliver it in 45 minutes if you can receive it in 45 minutes, okay? So, hey, I'm going fast. Please listen fast, all right? 
So let's start with a very, very familiar first, Isaiah 9-6. You hear this thing at Christmas all the time. Here's what it says. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, watch, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So let's consider what it means today that Jesus was given and the government was going to be on his shoulders. Uh, let's go back in and figure out what that Hebrew word shoulders is. It's Hayashekem. Hayashekem in the first half of that Hayam means to rest, to be placed upon, to be put upon, uh, that something actually came and stopped and stayed in a place. The word rest on his shoulders, that the government would do that. It says that it rests on his shoulders. So hear me out. That would imply clearly and easily easily that he carries it. It stays on his shoulders. Therefore, it is his burden to carry. And the system of government is what we're talking about. I need to break you real quick. Don't be thinking about the U.S. government. Don't be thinking about the U.K. Don't be thinking about socialistic government. We're talking about government from God's perspective. God is saying, I'm going to put the government on his shoulder. What is that? That's authority. Jesus is carrying authority and government. So what is government? In the Hebrew, that word means to rule, to have domain, to have authority, to make decisions. So this is on his shoulders, which means this load of decision-making and this load of authority is on Jesus. He bears the load of government on his back. He carries it. And now, if you're a believer, you might understand how to connect that to the cross and say he carried the cross to Golgotha, and therefore, through that process of the crucifixion, he got all authority in heaven and on earth. That was my church moment. Let's go back to the conference moment. So the second thing I want to look at is that if God put all of government on Jesus' shoulders, then no one is carrying government for him. He is carrying government. He carries the load on himself. And this, what that means for me is that the buck stops with Jesus. He is the pinnacle. He is the top of government. And when we begin to see what that means in our Constitution, what that means in the Declaration, we understand that it starts with Jesus as the top. So what Jesus says as far as governing goes is the final decision. There's no appeals court there's no appeals court when it comes to Jesus. He's the top of the pile. And you might say, well, isn't God above Jesus? Well, look at John 3, 34. For him who God sent speaks the words of God. Guess what? Jesus is God. So now you have the buck stops here, Jesus handling government. And he said it this way, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Listen, not some of the authority, not most of the authority, but Jesus has all 
of the authority, and this is going to just blow your mind for a minute, but if somebody has all, how much does somebody else have? None. None. Because it's all on Jesus. He has, uh, that's going to scare you for a minute, but I promise you, I'll bring you back to the earth in a minute. You cannot go above him for a different decision. And once he's decided something, there's no place to appeal it to, which in turn means that all other government must be under his authority. Because by definition, he's the top. So anything that is established as government is under Christ. Authority belongs to Christ. Hang on to your boots. Romans 13. Don't we love to get into this debate in churches about government? I'm going to read it to you, but I want you to understand we're talking about something that God is laying out for us to understand, not the U.S. Republic three executive branch system. That's not what we're talking about when he says every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Watch this. For there is no authority except from God. We've established that. Here it comes. And those which exist are established by God. Now, hear me close. Those authorities which exist, not the people which fill the positions It's the authority structure. What God is saying is there is authority structure. And there are authority structures that I want you to be in submission to. If I can just rabbit trail for a moment. What is he trying to teach us? That ultimately we are under his authority. So if a child, if my daughter, if my son could learn they are under my authority as a father, then how would that reflect on what they learn about God that I'm under his authority like I am under my father's authority? So we're talking about authority structure, not about government positions those which are they are established by God authority governing is established by God therefore whoever resists authority not a person but resists being under authority has opposed the ordinance of God what is the ordinance of God the authority structure called government that's under Jesus and those who have opposed will receive condemnation on himself now remember we're reading Romans 13 from God's perspective not from the US Constitution God is speaking and he's talking about being under authority he's not talking about being under your president But consider this before we move on. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God, and I think we mess that up, and we think that those refers to the people in the positions. It's not the people in the positions. It's the authority structure, the concept of having authority over you. If you cannot submit to authority, you will have a very serious problem with God. Because he has all authority and he's put it all on Christ's shoulders. Are you with me? 
No authority exists without God. Authority is a tool of God. Authority is a structure that God puts in place, and he wants us to operate, to understand, to learn how to operate under and authority. And if you believe that those in that scripture are the elected officials in government, then what you'd be saying is every evil leader was put there by God. Do we really believe that God put Hitler in place to kill six million of his own children, the chosen? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense because God's not talking about, I put that person in position. He's saying, I put that authority structure in place. Guess who fills the positions? You do. We do. We decide. Do you remember when, they, when God's children in the Hebrew time said, hey, we want a king? And he said, you don't need a king. No, you don't need a king. You need a judge. No, we want a king. Everybody else has a king. We need a king. No, you don't need a king. We want a king. Okay, I'll give you a king, but it won't go well for you. God did not... God decided that there needed to be an authority structure for people, that they had to understand how to operate. Think about his options. He did not decide to make everything we do majority rules. He did not decide that every man should ultimately be for himself and there should be no authority or authority structures around us. God did not decide that there would be no authority and everybody could do what you want. No, he said, I need an authority structure so they understand how to be in authority under me so that I will give them sub-leaders so they will train up under them so that they can be under authority to me. God decided there would be a structure where everyone is under someone's authority and that Jesus would be the top of that structure. Does that make sense? Good, because I've talked about it for too long. So God puts Christ at the top of this thing called the authority structure that we know as government, and he put governing on the back of Jesus so that he was the ultimate governing authority. Oh, you got to hear this. Maybe this clarifies how this relationship works with Jesus. Is the president of the United States in authority of himself? No. What is he under the authority of? The Constitution. The president has to be under the authority of the Constitution. He is not the ultimate authority. Uh, Joe Biden only has his position because he is under a Constitution that gives him authority. And that Constitution states that it gets its authority and rights from God. Are you with me? It is the Constitution that allows him to be president. He cannot go above the Constitution. The Constitution has authority over him. So the person in the role of president is not in authority. The Constitution is in authority over him. So when someone tries to make a law in the United States that is illegitimate, we call it unconstitutional. You can't do that. It's unconstitutional. You're under the Constitution, and you're trying to do something that is unconstitutional. And the Constitution is under God. 
So if there's a governing authority in the world, it's because Christ is at the top. And I'm going to show you for the believers in the room how Christ understood what it meant to be under authority when he was a man on the earth. Now, that may be kind of trippy for some of you that don't dig deep like we do here sometimes, but what we're saying is that Christ left the throne room and he came to live life as a man, and as he walked on this earth, he was under the authority of the structure that was in place. But let me show you how he dealt with it. John 19.10. So Pilate said to Jesus, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you. Watch Jesus's answer. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you above. What did he say? The Romans did not give you authority over me. You got authority from above if you have authority over me. He's basically saying, you don't have authority over me, but as a man, I will allow that authority to be in place. Jesus is telling the secular governor that you have authority, but it's been granted to you by God, not by man, and authority comes from God, not man. And God put the ultimate authority on Jesus. And if you're out from under Jesus' authority, you don't have legitimate authority. But Jesus said, I will submit to letting you crucify me. It says he remained silent as they accused. Why? Because he was under God's authority. He knew that God's predetermined plan, it says in Acts, is that he would be crucified. So instead of saying, "Uh uh-uh, nobody's going to kill me, I'm going to survive, he said, I can't say anything because I'm under the authority of God and I am going to be crucified. He understood authority, the governance of God that he was under. So what does our constitution say when it comes to us? We're endowed by inalienable rights given to us by our creator. The constitution recognizes that our rights come from God. It's critical to understand God's view of authority. It's not people. It's structure with Jesus as the top. Why is that important? Man, hang on. Hang on. Because you have to ask the question then, if all government is on Christ's shoulders, if all authority comes from Jesus, is it legitimate government to say that we should kill babies in the womb? No. Why is it illegitimate? Because that's not under Christ in the realm of authority. Are you with me? He does not decree that that's okay. Is it legitimate government to say that same-sex marriage is a righteous thing? No. Why is it illegitimate? Because it's not under Christ. Is it legitimate to say that we can treat a person differently because of their skin color? 
No. Why is it legitimate? What I'm trying to say is it's not the Constitution that makes it wrong. It's Jesus that makes it wrong because he's over the Constitution. Is it legitimate to say that violence and looting are the appropriate thing to do when we don't like a court decision? No. Why is it illegitimate? Because that's not under Christ. Is it legitimate to say that a person can determine their own sex? No. Why is it legitimate? Because that's not under Christ. He said, husbands, love your wives, and wives, respect your husbands. He did not say, husbands, love your husbands, or wives, respect your wives. It goes on and on as the believer makes these decisions. Is it legitimate to say a person can have sex with a child? No. Why is it illegitimate? Not because of the Constitution, but because that's not under Christ. Do you see that we begin to measure things by what falls in line with Christ's authority? What has he taught is right and wrong? So that when we look at these government decisions as believers, we have to say, does that fall in line with what Christ has taught us as righteous? And I don't need to show you scriptures for each of these, but the only, only a legitimate government is that which is under Christ. So Jesus does not give the authority to kill children, to have determine what your sex is, to sexually abuse children, to treat people different because of their skin color, to go to violence and looting if you don't like the solutions, or to have sexual relations with the same sex. Therefore, our government cannot dispense those things legitimately. They are ill illegitimate and operating under a false authority. Oh, you're about to think I'm going crazy here. You're about to think I'm getting radical here, but this is what I'm saying. It is time for the Christian to stand up and say, God does not approve of that. This is an issue in our government to say decisions are being made without consideration of Christ. Decisions are being made that do not line up with them. Therefore, if you're going to operate in that, you're operating in an illegitimate authority. And hear me clearly. None of this, none of this makes me an unloving person. None of it makes me a hater. None of it makes me homophobic. It makes me have compassion that you don't understand the beauty of being under Christ. The liberty and the joy and the freedom there is in Christ. The joy there is in not living my life confused about who I am. Because he tells me who I am. So I don't have to hate on anyone. I have to be compassionate that they're confused. I have to be empathetic that they're struggling. I have to understand that, listen to me. Oh, I could go off on this. (laughs) That the problem is not their body, it's their mind. And the word says that I got to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I'm not going to be transgendered by the surgery of my body. I'm going to be transformed by the renewing of my mind. (laughs) 
I think you're going to let me go there, so I'm going to go there. I've told our church, and maybe if you're new here, uh, you, you, you haven't listened to a message in the last few weeks, but we were talking about this whole transgender thing and what's going on in Pennsylvania. Someone here from Pennsylvania, okay? Uh, that man is swimming and competing against women, and it's not right. It's not fair. But listen to me. If I were to tell you, this audience right now, and we were to take a vote, if I were to say, I have a friend who thinks he's a cat... Listen, he is convinced he's a cat. He knows he's a cat. How many of us would say, well, let's get him some surgery then. Let's put some whiskers on him. Let's get a tail on him. I'm going to have a litter box at my house because I don't want to hurt his feelings that I don't believe him. No, what we would say is he's not a cat. There's something wrong in his mind that's making him think he's a cat. Now, I don't mind going back and sitting down and saying, what happened to you that would make you think you're a cat? Because that's not okay. You're going to live a miserable life trying to be... Okay, we'll get off that. (laughs) Jesus understood that he had to stay under authority. That's why he said, you will crucify me. But maybe a scripture like Romans 6.16 makes more sense. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as a slave for obedience, you are a slave to the one you obey? Wait. Either you're obeying sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Obedience to authority leads to righteousness, but it must be an authority that's resting on Jesus's shoulders. And did you notice obedience to sin or obedience to righteousness? We're not talking about who you elect or who you vote for. This is about who do you believe is in charge. Who do you believe has ultimate authority? Who do you believe we're answering to, Christian, for how we vote and how we decide and what we tolerate? I'm tired of the word tolerate. Uh, I think it's later in my notes, so I'll wait till I get to it. Everybody, when you talk about these issues, what do we do with them, Todd? How are we supposed to deal with things? How do we make a decision? Because these things are tough. When you talk about abortion, what do you do about rape or incest? When you talk about LGBTQ, what if they thought they were born that way? If you talk about racism, what's our actual history versus what we thought our history was and we were taught? And it's time to protest. What if we can't get anything done by diplomacy? What do we do? And the enemy does a great job of convincing us that we need to focus on the exception. A great job of telling us that our attention needs to be drawn to the half of 1% while the 99.5% do wrong. Mm. Here today, if I stand in front of you and the president throws me in the jail, guess what? It's temporary. I'll spend the time in jail because I know my God has the ability to send the earthquake and open up the jail and let me walk out. If you're going to write something down, write this down. 
There's a difference in grace and tolerance. Grace is something granted to a person. Tolerance is agreeing with the sin of others. Uh, it's not about what the news says, certainly. It's not about what Republicans or Democrats say. It's not about Trump or Biden. It's about me giving an answer to God to who I was obeying. If you haven't studied the Bible long, when he talks about are you obeying sin that leads to death, he's not talking about your mortal body dying. He's not talking about becoming such an alcoholic that you die of alcoholism. He's saying if you're obeying sin, the things of the kingdom of darkness are open for your life. The things of death, yes, the disease, yes, the, uh, the, the remorse, yes, the, the terrible depressions, the anxieties, all of those things that the enemy would want to put on you are the things you're going to get if your obedience is to sin. But if your obedience is to righteousness, that he's going to introduce you to joy. He's going to introduce you to what actual peace in your life means. When you can sit in the middle of the storm in the boat, and it's all good because I don't care about the storm as long as I don't let the storm get in my boat. <clears throat> Are we going to be obedient to sin or righteousness? And how will you defend your obedience to unrighteousness, sin, and death before your God? For me, making a decision of who to vote for is very difficult. It's very difficult because what I'm actually doing is weighing out who is most under the authority of Christ. And yet there are things that are still wrong, but I'm looking at who is closer to Christ, and that's who I want to support. But what we're meeting here today for is we need more people closer to Christ running for the election. We need to be able to say, here's a believer. Are they perfect? No. But they understand whose authority they're submitted to. Not a party, but to the king of kings. So let's talk directly about the Bible. Oh, man, we're going to go fast. Because I was raised in church like I think many of you were. That the church should not have anything to do with politics. Uh, don't get that government thing in here. Don't start talking about politics. We got no business in that. That's the world system. We just need to go about doing our system because we didn't learn that all government and authority is on the shoulders of Christ. So we thought we were not supposed to because somebody said in a letter one time a long time ago, there should be a separation of the church and state. And what they meant by what they said was, we don't want the government getting in the church's business. But they never meant the church shouldn't be involved in government. So I want to go back into Scripture because for me, if God's showing me these are the things I want you to do and I would bless you to do them, then I want to do those things. So the question is, is anybody in the Bible involved in government? I'm going to take you to the book of Genesis. Uh, I'm going to go to uh, chapter 41, and I'm going to talk about a guy. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom there is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
Since God has informed you of all this, is there no one so discerning and wise as you are? You shall be over my house. According to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all of the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand. He put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine garments, put a necklace around his neck, and gave him a ride in the second chariot and proclaimed before everybody, bow the knee. And he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one will raise a hand or a foot in all the land of Egypt. I don't know if you're getting this. Pharaoh is the secular leader of Egypt. He is a secular king, that title Pharaoh means. And so Joseph has been promoted in the secular government to second in command. He is the vice president of Egypt right now. Joseph is in secular government and over an entire territory called Egypt. And the secular government was blessed because Joseph's connection to God. The famine in Egypt was avoided in the land because a God follower heard from the Lord about what to do in the country. And the king listened. Oh, good job, pastor. Good job. You found one guy who's actually in secular government. Let's go. Let's go to the book of Daniel. (laughs) Daniel chapter six. There's a king in the land, not a believer, not a God follower, not a Jew, not a Hebrew. There's a king named Darius in chapter six. It seemed good to King Darius to appoint satraps over the kingdom. What is a satrap? Look it up. The definition is a governor over a province of Asia. Satraps over the kingdom that would be in charge of the whole kingdom and over them three commissioners of which Daniel was one that these satraps might be accountable to them and the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Are you getting the picture? Daniel is a governor over governors in the secular government, not talking about the people in the kingdom of God, talking about the secular government. Here's the rest of the story. The other governors get jealous of Daniel, and they used his relationship with God against him. They made a decree, and they said, for 30 days, if anybody bows down to anybody or anything except King Darius, we're going to throw him in the lion's den. King Darius said, well, that sounds like a good idea. Everybody will bow down to me. Okay, I agree. Daniel said, I ain't bowing down to you. I'm praying to my God and my God only. It was a secular government decree that Daniel would not follow. Why? Because it was not submitted to the authority of God. So he gets thrown in the den. Let's go to Daniel 6.20. 
when he, Darius the king, had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice, and the king said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent an angel to shut the mouths of the lion, and they haven't harmed me, inasmuch as I've been found innocent before man and also uh, before you. O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased, and he gave orders for Daniel to be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den, and no injury whatsoever was found on him because he trusted in his God. And the king gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them and their children and their wives into the lion's den. Uh Uh-oh. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed them in all their bones. The one that left Daniel alone all night and didn't touch him. And Darius the king wrote to all the people of the nations and the men of every language who were living in every land. May peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. What are we noting here? Daniel defies a government order because it is out of alignment with his God. Daniel is thrown into a lion's den and kept safe by his God. The king says, your God is incredible. And so the king tells the entire country, you cannot speak against this God. You will fear and tremble before Daniel's God. Are you seeing what one man did who stood up for God? Oh, wow. Hey, pastor, you found two stories where somebody was in secular government in the Bible. Maybe they're anomalies. Maybe not. Let's go to Daniel chapter (laughs) 3. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you a command is given, O people and nations and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a furnace of blazing fire. King Nebuchadnezzar made a statue of himself, and he told everyone to bow down to it. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're not bowing to any president. I'm sorry, did I say president? We're not bowing to any king. So what happens? The king throws them in the fire, and Jesus shows up. And nothing comes out. They come out and it says they don't even smell like they've been in a furnace. They don't even smell. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, you could get around a campfire and the next day smell your clothes and they smell like the campfire. So they didn't even smell that way. Now watch what happens in Daniel 3.28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make the decree that any people, nation, tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. What happened? 
They disobeyed a secular government command. They were punished, but it didn't work because God rescued him. The result is that the king declares that their God is God of all the land. Even more, the king says, don't you dare even speak offensively against their God. We'll rip you up and burn your house down. Stories in the Bible, Moses goes before Pharaoh to get the children of God out of there. Esther goes before the secular king, her husband, to to stand up for the Hebrew people. But what about the New Testament? I got asked this a couple weeks ago. Yeah, you can give Old Testament stories of people in government, but I bet you can't give a New Testament story of people in government. This is what I can tell you. In the New Testament, Christians went up against the secular government on a regular basis for their faith. First, we note in the New Testament that we're in the first century, and so the Romans are in charge, not the Jews. And Paul was tried before a secular government After he was sent there by believers, and we'll talk about that in some other sermon. I'm going to go to Acts 16 and talk about Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas are put in secular jail. They were delivering a girl who had a demon, and they pulled the demon out of her and cast it out. But there were some men who were working with this girl who were making money off of the demonic spirit in her, and they got set mad, and they sent the uh, Paul and Silas to the government. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged him in the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and they're proclaiming customs, which is unlawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. Don't miss the fact that the secular people are saying the Christians are doing something that's not in line with the secular government. The crowd rose up against them. The chief magistrate tore off the clothes off them, and he proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when he struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. I don't know if you saw it, but for doing the work of Christ, the secular government beat them and put them in jail. And Paul and Silas decide to pray and sing while they're in the jail. And what do you know? An earthquake just happens to happen at that moment. Just happens to be in the history of time that Paul and Silas are in a jail singing to their God and the ground begins to shake and the prison bars break open. And when the jailer woke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice and said, don't harm yourself for we're here. And he called for the lights, and he rushed in with trembling and fear, and he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sir, what do I got to do to be saved? Yeah, Paul and Silas don't say, You're going to have to come up with a good story to tell your boss. Because it wasn't the salvation he was looking for. They led him to Christ, and he as an entire jailer family came to Christ. Why? Because they worshiped God when they were thrown in jail by the secular government. Peter's imprisoned. Herod is a secular king. Acts 12.1. Now about that time, Herod laid his hands on some who belonged to church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother John, put to death with a sword. And he saw that it pleased the Jews, so he decided to arrest Peter also. Oh, listen to me, believer. There can come a time when it's just popular to persecute the Christian. Why? Because they're 
haters. They're right-wing activists. They're homophobics. So Peter is arrested by the secular government because the secular government knows he's a Christian. So Peter was kept in prison but prayed for him. Being, a prayer was being made fervently for him by the church of God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound by two chains. And the guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. Behold, the angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and the light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side, and he woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off of his hands. And the angel said, Gird yourself, put on your sandals. And he did. And he said, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And the angel just walks him out doors just open in front of the angel and he just comes right out why because prisons are nothing in God's eyes except something to walk right out of there are others John the Baptist is beheaded so for a moment if you're going well but no one in the New Testament was actually in a secular government position so God must disapprove of that now can I tell you the church I grew up in it was a denomination, and I don't mind calling it out because I'm not being mean. It was the Church of Christ. If you grew up in the Church of Christ, there's one thing very distinct when you go to their service. There's no instrumental music, no piano, no organ, no band, no instruments, only vocal. I grew up in that for 20 years, and I finally asked the question, why do other churches have musical instruments and we don't? And this was the explanation I was given. The Old Testament is history, and it was God's people under an old covenant. The book of Revelation is about our future and what is to come. But if you go from Matthew to Jude, there's not a single mention of instrumental music in worship. David worshiped with a heart and lyre. Psalms 150 tells us to, right? In Revelation, there are elders around the thrones with harp. But we were told no because there's a silence between Matthew and Jude because God didn't say anything about it, then we shouldn't do it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I got about 20 years old, I thought that is the dumbest thing. <laughs> Only from the standpoint of if my God doesn't say we're not going to do this anymore, then my guess is whatever his character is, we're going to do. And if he tells me they worship him with a harp around the throne in heaven and David worshiped him with the stringed instrument, but he didn't tell me to stop, why am I stopping? It's what God does. Let's do it. So if you're going to tell me nobody in the New Testament was in secular government, I'm going to say, then your God is not the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I'm not being mean, but can we just think about what we're saying? Clearly, it's in the character of God to bless his people who have governmental positions. I've shown you four examples. Clearly, it is in the character of God to bless his people who are oppressed by secular government. I've shown you four different examples. He's not worried about us going up against the government. He's not worried about us standing up and saying, no, we will worship and serve our God. You can't tell me to shut down my church. What's the matter with you? So I got two and a half minutes left, and I'm going to go one more argument. Are you okay? Okay. 
so here's the next argument. Well, wait a minute, pastor. Don't you understand that churches have this thing called the 501c3 status? And the 501c3 says that you're tax exempt and therefore you can't talk about these government things. I'm going to read to you out of the 501c3 definition. This is a direct quote. Look it up yourself. An IRC, Section 501c3 organization, may engage in some lobbying, but too much lobbying activity risk loss of tax exemption status. First of all, I don't care if you take our tax exemption status for But did you notice that it said you can do some but if you do too much, how are they defining that? Let me tell you one of the ways they're defining it in the 501c3 doctrine. It's called the expenditure test. In other words, they're going to say, how much money are you spending on a candidate? You know what that limit is? A million a year. I don't know about you, but we're probably not going to do a million this year. I'm going to keep reading to you because I got a minute. The political campaign activity prohibition isn't intended to restrict free expression on political matters by leaders of churches or religious organizations speaking for themselves as individuals, nor are leaders prohibited from speaking about important issues of public policy. What did that just say? It just says, pastors, you can speak for yourself when it comes to political issues. Did you notice it said religious organizations can speak for themselves when it comes to it? Now, to be clear, the 501c3 is pretty clear that religious leaders cannot campaign for or tell people during a church function who to vote for. In other words, in the words of the 501c3, you can't intervene in an election. Now, how many of you remember that our vice president, Kamala Harris, made a video, sent it to Georgia, and said, I want you to play this in the churches and tell them who they should be voting for? So let's get this straight. The vice president can tell the churches who to vote for in a church service, in a church. He can tell them to vote for her candidate, but the pastor cannot do that. And is it just me or any pastor who agreed to play that video? Are they not implicitly saying, I agree with what's being played? So are they not saying, I agree with this, vote for this candidate? And wait, there's more. And if the vice president can tell the congregation who to vote for because she's not the pastor, then why don't we have one of our elders stand up and tell us who to vote for? <laughs> or maybe our pastors just need to say, if the vice president can come into my church and tell my people who to vote for, then so can I. I ain't done. They've given me 15 more minutes. I am almost done, but I got to finish this. Did you know that that 501c3 status had an executive order written against it in May of 2017 by then-President Donald Trump. Oh, stay with me. 
This is what the executive order said. I'm reading it after I've read you what the 501c3 says. It shall be the policy of the executive branch to vigorously enforce federal law's robust protections for religious freedom. The founders envisioned a nation in which religious voices and views were integral to a vibrant public square in which religious people and institutions were free to practice their faith without fear of discrimination or retaliation by the federal government. For that reason, the United States Constitution enshrines and protects the fundamental right to religious liberty as America's first freedom. It goes on to say that all executive departments and agencies tell to the greatest extent practical and to the extent permitted by law respect and protect the freedom of persons and organizations to engage in religious and political speech in particular the state of the secretary of the treasury shall ensure to the extent permitted by law that the department of the treasury does not take any adverse action against any individual house of worship or other religious organization on the basis that such individual or organization speaks or has spoken about moral or political issues from a religious perspective. Are you with me? The executive order says, in essence, you can go read both. The 501C is kind of a long document. When it comes to religious, it's just a section or two to read. Then you can read the executive, ex executive order that it basically says there will be no enforcement of it. I don't care if the rule stays in place, but he's telling the uh, Secretary of the Treasury, you can't go take their tax status away if they do. Do you know that's in force right now? That's in play right now. Now, I'm going to tell you, that executive order does not remove the Johnson Amendment, does not remove the 501c3. But here's what it does do. It gives you a legal basis to say, I'm going to talk to my people about the candidates and what they believe and who I believe they should vote for. And I've got some legal standing here in the way of protection. In other words, the 501c3 is off the table now. It should not prevent churches from talking about politics. Church, I'm going to ask the question. The fact that the church as a whole took the stance that we're supposed to be separate from government, that there's a separation between church and state, that we shouldn't talk politics. Did it make things better in our country? <laughs> then it goes to reason if we continue that line of thinking, it continues to get worse. Listen to me. Back when we were talking about Roe v. Wade, we were talking about abortions in the first trimester may be the mom's right, but in the second, they got to have a doctor's agreement and some kind of valid reason, and here's an exception or two. But last year, our governors were saying, let's let the child be born and then decide whether or not we should let it die. 
It doesn't get better. It only gets worse. And their only people who are willing to stand up about it are going to be those who are under Christ's authority, who understand these things are wrong. They are not righteous. They do not need to be part of our country. So if we don't stand up, it gets worse. And I don't want to stand before my God and say, I'm sorry, I did nothing to speak up for you. Silence 